Hi everyone, it's Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the path to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. Whoa, do we have a crazy story in store for you today. Today combines my love of true crime and fertility stories. Not exactly true crime, but definitely some court drama. Come hear how two of my dear friends, Alad and Andrew, had a surrogate carry twins for them. One was denied American citizenship and one was given American citizenship. And this case almost went to the Supreme Court. I cannot wait for you to hear the details. It is so fascinating. You're going to love it. Here are Alad and Andrew. So welcome to Alad and Andrew. I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Your story is so different than any I've done on this show, as I'm sure you hear all the time. Let's start with you guys. How did you meet? How did you fall in love? Let me hear your story. Um, yeah. So, well, we actually <laughs> met in Israel. I moved to Israel in my mid-20s and through a series of just events, ended up deciding to stay. And I lived there for four years and I got my master's degree at Tel Aviv University. Awesome. And in Middle East studies. And so while I was studying for my master's at the university, Alad was um, simultaneously enrolled in his bachelor's degree at the university, you know, post army and all that kind of stuff. And as a master's student, like we kind of, we all lived in this, in the city, had our apartments, like we didn't do like functions on the campus, but I had friends, it was a Purim and I have to, I have to make sure I emphasize Purim because every non-Jew who hears this story thinks I say porn. So we met at a Purim party. Right. <laughs> Thank you party. for clarifying. <laughs> That's clarify. a whole different podcast if you want to do That's the other one. That's a whole one. different podcast. Yeah. I mean, but you'd be surprised at the number of people that hear that the story and they hear porn party and they just keep letting me go with it because they're like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense that you guys would meet at a porn They're party. like, good for him for being so open <laughs> yeah. about their story. Uh, you know? Like I love that they went from the journey from porn stars to fathers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, but for the record, we are not porn stars. Um, <laughs> Noted. Uh, so there was a porn party at the campus. And as I was saying, going back to what I was saying before, I was a master student, like we didn't really fraternize with like the underclassmen or, you know, go to like the little, uh, the silly little events. But I had a couple of friends that convinced me to go. And so I went to the forum party and that is where I saw my future husband. Okay. And was it like love at first sight? Was it his dance moves? Like what was it? How did it start? Oh yeah. He was looking fine. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) He was, I think you were talking to a friend and you asked her. Yeah. Is he gay? Is he interested? Well, because we made eyes with each other. And I'm like, okay, I know that look. Like, sure. And then I saw it again. I'm like, oh, there's that look again. And so then she had a mutual friend. And I was like, hey, like, just real quick clarification. He's gay, right? She's like, yeah. And he was asking about you. Do you want me to intro? I was like, no, nope, you don't need. I'm, I'm on like, it. You gave me all the info I need. I'm on it. I got I this one. <laughs> Amazing. But that was not it. Because I think you got, you contacted me for Facebook and then you got my phone number. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is when you stood me up on our first dates. I contacted you. I think it was after. Anyway, I w- we had a first date planned. Okay. And I was living in the dorms and back then the phones didn't have 
internet or anything like well, this that. This is 2008 girls. So like we're talking like centuries ago, right? Centuries ago. Centuries. And, right? <laughs> I was staying at my parents' house and then I left, I think on a Sunday, back to the dorms and I forgot my phone at my parents' house. And there was no really a way to communicate. And I forgot that I had this date planned and I stood him up and he texted and called, but I didn't get any of the texts or calls until the next day because I forgot my phone. And at the beginning of our relationship, I mean, he forgave me and we moved on, but I he actually wanted you to come on here today to let you know he hasn't actually forgiven you. Hasn't and forgiven you. Yeah. That's a whole different podcast. Exactly. That's a whole other one too. But at the beginning, he was like, how can you forget your phone? That makes no sense. But after living with me for 14 years, he gets it. I forget like, my phone all the time. Every dinner we go to, I have to check the table when we leave because there's a lot of cell phone, a lot of sunglasses, his wallet. It's all still on the table as he's already out the door. So it actually is a thing. It's a now thing. I know 15 years later, but preparing for the first date that I was stood up. Yeah. Yeah, that was that, that, nice. That burn. But nice that you forgave him. Now it was Purim. Were you guys yes. dressed up? Yes. What were you? Andrew, there's actually a photo to commemorate the ascendant. Okay. And Andrew does not like that photo, but oh. I was a sexy cowboy. Like the shirt open all the way here and the bandana and the plaid and the boots and everything and the hat. Andrew was like, remember, this was a party I didn't want to go to. Like he gave a costume for. My friends are like, just throw on something. So I had a bunch of blue stuff. And then I found like blue mascara and blue glitter and like a blue wand and I and blue wings somehow. So he was a blue fairy. So I was like a blue fairy. Nice. Amazing. (laughs) Okay, so you finally have your first date, and like, did it move pretty quickly at that point? Yeah, I think we met like pretty quickly after. It was just before my birthday, so he had more excuses to reach out and yeah. wish me happy birthday, and kind of like take it from there. Yeah, it was two days before his birthday, and I remember my friend was like, "Oh, you should wait like the three days, like you know, the three day rule." And I was like, "Hey, well, it's his birthday, like in two days, so I think it's rude if I don't reach out on his birthday." And so I, yeah. good job, good job. And just for clarification, I was I was twenty two. That's okay. really young. Yeah, I was not looking for anything serious mm-hmm. at all. Like I was not in that mindset. It was my first year at university you know i had two more years i three full years basically to complete and i would i just started working at the school for overseas students where he was a student at and i had no interest and he kind of like forced me into it in he a wooed way. you let's say wooed wooed <laughs> wooed okay <laughs> uh, but yeah it just progressed Sometimes you don't know you need something until you have it. And, mm. and Andrew, so how long did you have left in your program when you met him? When you met a lot? So I had a, about a year and a half left. And he had, in my, for my degree, he had two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half. So, okay. Yeah. And so how did you, who, how did who decide where whom was going to move? <laughs> if you know what so I mean. Like, it, yeah, it was pretty early on. Like I, I didn't make Aliyah, which, as you know, means like immigrant to Israel, right. which, uh, you know, other Jews do. I That just wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. I, I've always been a dual Canadian and American citizen. 
Mm-hmm. I was born in California, raised in California, two Canadian parents. So I've always had two passports, never been interested in a third. And so anyway, I was just in Israel on a student visa. So I was very honest with a lot in the fact that when my degree is done and I've achieved my master's, I'm going to move back to California or to somewhere else in the U.S., mm-hmm. maybe Washington, D.C., you know, that made a lot more sense being regarding the field that I studied. And incidentally, he was totally on board because he had during his, like, you know, between the army and university Israelis, right. they go abroad for like yeah. six months or a year. And like, most of them go to like South America or India. The snobby ones go to California. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's your lane. So he actually did his six months between army and university in California. Amazing. Um, you know, before we obviously had met because we met right. in university, right? And so... He's like, oh my God, like I'm obsessed with California. I lived there for six months. It's like my favorite place on earth. Like, hell yeah, if like this goes well, like, yes, let's move to California together. Amazing. So that was like a very early conversation. And I was like, all right, let's park this. Like we got our plan. Yeah. And, and was um, marriage a part of the early conversation and or children? Like, did you guys lay it out there that that was important to you? Yeah, you know, we did. Uh, I have to admit that back then in 2008, for me, someone who, was raised in Israel, was hard to imagine or put myself in, you know, fast forward to me as a gay person being married to another man, let alone having kids. I wanted it. I knew I wanted it. But it was hard for me. Like I said, we'll take it a day at a time and see what happens. It was just, a, you know, gay marriage was not legal generally in the U.S., most of the world a select countries in Europe and Canada by, at that time and South, South Africa, and that's it. So mm-hmm. there was not a lot of same-sex marriage around the world. So we didn't really, I didn't really know what's going to happen, but I tried to stay hopeful and see what's well, going to We did have conversations through the, the following two and a half years yeah, on like, like clearly if you're going to immigrate, then, you know, marriage kind of, we're going to be kind of forced into it. Um, like we both kind of wanted to do it. We were still in our twenties, though, so it was a little on the early side. But um, you know, thinking about immigration purposes. Yeah, yeah. I was also at that time. I was not out to my wide extended family. That's what I was going to ask. Twenty-two. Yeah. Andrew was very much out and proud hello and he was a blue fairy for Purim although exactly. you were you were a sexy cowboy I guess that I don't know they're both I get it but okay so your family's complicated but my parents my sisters knew yeah but it's very complicated my grandparents didn't know my aunts uncles all the extended family friends obviously did but I was kind of like in my my coming out story was a long story and yeah. I will tell you they, yeah. It wasn't like, yeah. you know. Like in the army, in the army, were you out with your people in the army? I was. Yes. Okay. So it was like people. My parents yeah. at 18. Okay. And then my friends, my close friends. Yeah, my close friends knew, mm-hmm. but my extended family didn't know until 25. Okay. And how, how old were you, do you think, when you knew you were gay? You are gay. I want to say 12. I remember sitting at a mall in Israel. Mm-hmm. It's Kenyan Ayalon in Ramat Gan. <laughs> and I was sitting, my mom was shopping. I was just waiting on the bench outside. And some guy like 
dressed with a suit and a, and a briefcase, tall, handsome, dark, you know, well-built, was walking. And I was like, oh, wow, he looks really great. And then I was, I stopped. It was all in my head. And I stopped. And I'm like, wait a minute. Do you like the way he looks? Does he, are you attracted to him? Or do you want to look like him? Mm. It was like this conversation in my head. And I think back then I was like, oh my God, I think I might like the way he looks. And that's when I started thinking a lot about it. And then eventually at a later age in high school, exploring what that meant. Like. And, then, and then you came out at 18 to your parents. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I know it's not easy. And Andrew, what about you? How old were you when you knew? Probably like around 13. And I came out in high school, my junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is in the late 90s. Not a lot of people were coming out back then. I remember before I came out, Ellen's show got canceled. I don't know if you remember that. I do. She came out on her show. Yes. And the response she got was canceled. Yes. You know, so that was like a really big slap in the face to, I think, the gay community, but especially to a 17-year-old boy who's struggling with his sexuality and coming out. And I was actually the first openly gay person in my high school's history. Amazing. Which was crazy. Now it's here in LA. Uh, I mean, I guess. That was in LA, right? Yeah, in, in West LA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So with that came a lot of difficult times. Yeah. Not just bullying and harassment, but back then there weren't laws on the books to protect gay students like there are now. Yeah. You know, there was still discrimination in schools against gays, discrimination in housing, discrimination in employment. And some of those only until very recently got resolved on the federal level. But um I had no protection. Yeah. And so I really struggled in the early days. Um I didn't struggle coming out. That was, but I struggled once I was out to stay safe. Yeah. Mm. Do you feel like your family was as supportive as they could be at the time when you came out? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I'm really lucky. I'm really that lucky. Is, that I, is lucky. My yeah. brothers and sisters, my parents, everyone was really supportive. You know, my father, I think, struggled a little bit at the beginning. He was a Reagan Republican. Mm. And so, you know, in the late 90s, the things that he knew about gays were that, you know, all gay men get AIDS and die. And that's right. what Reagan told him. And that's right. what he saw living in L.A. And so mm. when his 17-year-old son came out to him, I think that was his first initial reaction. It was more just out of fear. Yeah. But once I explained to him, no, dad, it's a different time. Reagan's gone. We have Clinton <laughs> now. He's yeah. one of the good guys. Like, right. my dad's warmed up to it. Yeah. Mm, so complicated. So you meet, you fall in love. So you come back here to get married. It's a little more complicated. Okay, than that. good. So Give it. In 2010, I graduated. Andrew graduated in 2009 and stayed an extra year in Israel. So we moved in together to an apartment right by the beach on Ben Yehuda Street in Tel Aviv. We lived a life. We got a, a new puppy, London, which we still have. Oh my He's god. 14 now. Oh my god. Andrew used to walk him to the beach every single day and take his walks on the beach with him. But we knew we we're gonna get married and move. But back then, same-sex marriage was not recognized federally in the US. Okay. So which means that Andrew could not have we could have gotten married in Massachusetts or really anywhere else, but then in order for me, an Israeli to move to the U.S., I needed to get a green card, and the federal level did not allow 
for Andrew to sponsor me for a green card is my husband because the marriage between wasn't legal. Was not right. Oh, okay. Like a lot of us saying on the state level, like I think Massachusetts and maybe a couple other states had it. Famously, California didn't because you remember right. Prop 8. Prop 8, yes. that was the year 2008, 2008. when Obama yeah. was elected and also Prop 8 passed, which was yeah. this crazy conflict. And But DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, is actually what kind of ruled our situation because that was gay marriage isn't recognized on a federal level. But so we had no choice. We couldn't. We really wanted to move to California to be where Andrew's siblings are and his family, but we couldn't. And then Andrew suggested, well, I have two citizenships, Canadian and American, and in Canada, gay marriage was legal since 2003. So we were like, what about moving to Toronto, where his extended family was? Like my immediate family was all in California, but my aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody was in Toronto, because that's where my parents were from. They moved to LA when my mom was pregnant. Okay. So he took me there to Toronto in September, which is beautiful weather. Everything is lovely. Oh, and he tricked like, you. Yeah, he, he tricked, tricked me. Totally Perfect. tricked me. Yeah. And I'm like, just I to, love the city. Just to test it out to see if this was a place that we yeah. could. You know, so we flew from Tel Aviv to Toronto. Loved it. Yeah. And then we planned our big move to Toronto. And we got all excited. We were like, you know what? Clearly America doesn't want us. So you know what? We're going to Canada. Going to a country that I am a citizen and I could sponsor, you know, because it was a really tough place for me to be in. I was essentially having to choose because of these discriminatory laws between the person I fell in love with and being with him or my being with my family and being close to my family. That was a really unfair place to be in. But, you know, you just you play the cards you're dealt. And so yeah. and those were the cards. And so we moved to Toronto and we lived there from 2010. To 2017, seven wow. years. Wow. Uh, we got married in 2011 in Toronto. We, okay. we brought in all of our family, my family from Israel, Andrew's family from LA, friends from around the world, the people who lived in Toronto, and we had a beautiful wedding in August. Sure. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So now, were you guys working? Like, did you find employment there? Were you... Yeah, that was the challenge because I was sponsoring a lot to immigrate. Yeah. We couldn't work right away. Yeah. So I got a job when we got there because I was legal. It took like nine months for him to get the work visa to mm. start working. So I was planning our wedding. Yeah, yeah. she was. was a full time wedding planner. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So at what point do children enter the mind? I think we always both knew we wanted kids. I have four older siblings. And between them, there are 10 nieces and nephews. So I always wanted to have a family, and a lot did too. That was, I think, one of the things initially that, because, you know, it's not every homosexual male date that kids come up as a topic and both sides, you know, it's (laughs) not pigeonholing or stereotyping. No, totally. Speaking from experience. From experience, yeah. And then I think living in Toronto in a city that is so liberal and so open, helped me understand that it is possible for us to have kids. You know, in the subway, there are ads for a bank with two men with a kid sitting on a couch and having a conversation. And and it's just like opened my eyes and made it, I, basically, I was like, oh, it is possible. So let's look into it. Okay. And there's like that phrase, uh, you can't be it if you can't see it or something like that. So if you yes. see it, it does actually make you feel like yeah. you can be it. 
And then we started have, getting some friends and some of our friends were gay couples that went through the process mm-hmm. and had kids. And I think then we started researching a lot. And after two years, I was like, I think it's time. Let's in 2015. Yeah. I was like, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so obviously you knew you were going to need a surrogate. That helps going into the process knowing. Yeah. For sure. So I'm just thinking about like, it's compassionate only. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's hard to explain. So basically in the United States, the law, surrogacy is legal. I can pay a woman, like a woman could be like, here's my business card. I am a surrogate by profession. I charge $100,000. I pay taxes to the government. That's just the deal. Mm Mm-hmm. In Canada, it's surrogacy, like in actually most countries in the world, I think almost all of Europe as well, Israel included, surrogacy is illegal, so you can't pay a woman to rent her uterus for nine mm-hmm, months. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Canada, the kind of the loophole is compassionate surrogacy. So a surrogate can compassionately, legally Offer. help you with your family, yes. and all you have to reimburse her for her expenses. Okay. And then there's a little bit of gray area, too, because it's like, obviously, you know, she can't be like, oh, you know, you need to buy me a car. because You know, it's right. like, there, there's a judge that reviews <laughs> receipts and audits and for any kind of fraud or misuse. And I think the law in Canada, it's to protect against human trafficking yeah. and, and women that really need it and depend on it to live. So you, they sell their body, basically. Yeah. So that law is there. To protect the women. But uh-huh. You have a lawyer and you get a lawyer for the surrogate and you mm-hmm. kind of come to an amount that is fair that she would be reimbursed for her expenses, you know, the food, the clothes, like whatever she needs. Mm-hmm. And that's what you pay through the agency. But yeah, so. Okay, so there is that. still an agency. It's just a different fee structure, basically. Right. They help you just basically to facilitate it. Find and facilitate. Yeah. So we actually said, let's do it in phases. Because, you know, it's daunting, it's mentally and emotionally taxing, there's a lot, and of course financially, there's a lot to it. The process is very complicated, so we said, okay, we know we need an egg, because we don't have an egg, so let's focus on finding an egg donor. That's easier. Mm-hmm. There are egg donor banks that women donate their eggs, and then you can go, you can select the egg donor that you're interested in, and they show you her uh, medical history and all of the stuff and details about her family, genetics, um, health-wise. It's similar to the service, egg donation is you have to reimburse her for her cost. You're never right. Right. For her okay. eggs. right. So it's a similar kind of process that we talked about. So we joined a website, we paid the fee to the website to see profiles mm-hmm. of egg donors, looked through many profiles, saw the picture. There's no names. Most of it's anonymous. Just saw the pictures and then the genetics, familial details. And then we selected the egg donor. donor. And the whole process, we selected the fertility clinic because there are a lot of them, met with the doctor, went through psychological evaluations, said all of this. So you did all that, like part A, just so you could have it done. Which is great. Then we hired the lawyer. We, we gave it. our sperm, and then she came to donate her eggs. Did you meet her? No. Okay. She wanted to stay anonymous. She wanted we, to. Okay. Yeah, we wanted. We kind of at the end said, "Oh, it would be nice if we can 
get to know her, and then she said no. So the day that we go to deposit our sperm mm-hmm. at the fertility clinic, because they need fresh sperm, and that's the day that they do the egg retrieval. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the IVF process, the woman takes the injections, and it after, I think it's six weeks, she they go in to retrieve the eggs, and there's multiple eggs that drop in that period yeah. as a result of the drugs. And so, but they needed us to deposit our sperm the same day. But they were very, very adamant, like, you have to come at this time, which was obviously clear to us why, because she right. was there, like, at the first half of the day. And right. so I remember a lot of them were like, let's just go, like, stake, like, stake out in the front door <laughs> and, like, see. And then, I don't know, that our conscience got the better of us. Yeah. We just like, be respectful of other people's wishes, and we didn't. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there's that nagging curiosity. Yeah. And, and we still have it. Like my children share 50% genetics to right. somebody who we don't know. Right. Right. Which is this whole quandary we're all in anyway. Right. But like, right. it's also a miracle that we're in. So, okay. So you do part A, eventually you do part B and you find your surrogate. Were you seeking somebody that was willing to put in? Cause spoiler alert, they have twins that was open to putting to it. Like that was seeking to put two in. Yes. I think that at that time, our doctor, the fertility doctor said, look, my success rates are very high. I can almost guarantee that if you put one, it's going to be a successful pregnancy. If you go through the PGS and all of the screenings and genetic testing, you know, we knew that if we're going through that, there's still the risk of not resulting in a, in a successful pregnancy. And we just said, if we get twins, we can just do it once and get it over with. And that's what the couple that I mentioned before did yes, exactly that's- that. Right, you're inspiring and we were, we couple. We saw them. Yeah. And we just said, let's just do it. Also for the for the sake, if one doesn't take, then the other does, and we get twins, then great. So yes, one of our questions was, would you be willing to implant two embryos? But it was also we were on this cusp. We did this all in 2015. Five years previous to that, people were putting in seven. Five. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah with and, the hopes that one would take. Right. And a lot of times none. And take. five years later, most doctors wouldn't even put two in, probably. Right. So now we they were, don't allow. So we yeah. were kind of on the cusp of that. Where right. Like, where our doctor was like, you know, the technology is so advanced that I don't think you need to put more than one. But And from what I understand, now he is only allowing one. Right. Will not do more than one. Right. So we were we were right, right where that was, that technology was changing. Yeah. And we obviously, like, the most important thing to us was healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby and then what what happened is that we got the embryos and then we sent them to pgs testing which stands Um, for pre-genetic screening screening yes and basically just to make sure that all the chromosomes and everything is in order and we sent i think like eight in total and only two came back as viable to use and we said okay Two came back. We were toying with the idea of having twins. Let's just put those two that came back. You both participated. So it was one right. from each of you. knew it was one from each of you, or you just knew two of the batch? We yes. actually did. So when we deposited our sperm and she had a large amount of eggs through in the retrieval process. Uh-huh. So the doctor fertilized half with my sperm, half with the lods. And then we did this PGS testing. And incidentally... One from my batch and one from a log's batch were We're the only two, yeah, viable that passed the PGS test. So that was kind of what kind of like everything aligned. Yeah, and we're like, okay, let's do it. That's 
that's what the universe wants us to do. So we're going to do it. And I don't want to undersell the whole finances of the process too. Like I would be lying to you if I said that shelling out a whole, like doing this all over again for a second pregnancy didn't factor into our decision of should we or should we not have plans. Like we don't have rich parents. Like no one was paying for this. We paid for this ourselves, you know? So financing it ourselves and having these two embryos that were high quality and the surrogate who was willing to put two embryos in, it just, the path that we took. It made sense. Great. Okay. Babies are born and... Pregnancy was not easy. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) What happened? Well, it was the 28 weeks we found out that one of the babies had an interuterine growth restriction. He didn't grow anymore. He was not receiving any nutrients from his placenta at all. The placenta was damaged. And and basically what they said, 28 is way too early. Uh-huh. Take them out. But in a twin situation, you're like, you have two. You can't just take one out and save the life of the other one. You have to either terminate both or continue and then risk the, the one that was not yeah. growing. So basically what they said, they moved us to a different hospital that had a higher level of care. And every two days, we had to come to the hospital to get an ultrasound to make sure that there's still something moving from the placenta to the baby. And we stretched it from 28 weeks to 32 weeks. Four extra weeks, which made a world of a difference. The the risk was so that we had one baby one embryo uh, that the placenta was damaged and he was not receiving sufficient nutrients and the doctor said he will do better out of the womb than in mm-hmm. the womb. but you can't induce labor and only take one out and leave one right. out. so the other baby was growing at a completely healthy normal rate normal rate and so she said the idea here is we're going to leave them in as long as possible for the other baby's sake to grow mm-hmm. And until the moment that it becomes very dangerous for baby B, we will then induce and take them both out. Okay. And so that was why we were going for ultrasounds in, instead of every, every two days. Every, yeah. Every instead of every two weeks, which is like a usual twin pregnancy, it was yeah. every two days, so that the doctor can determine, okay, we've hit the point where the baby is is at risk and we need to pull them out. Okay. Um, so you, you made it to 32. Right. We made it to 32. Then they planned to induce. It took a few more days to find, actually, back then, a NICU that will accept them because they were so little and it has to be like a level three or something. And so we're like, oh, okay, well, we'll just have our babies induced now and then they'll be in a NICU and start growing. And then all the NICU beds in the, mm-hmm. in the Toronto area were full. They couldn't, there was, there was no beds. They're like, literally, we cannot induce this pregnancy because we have no beds to put your kids in. And the doctors were like, we're going to helicopter you to Detroit. Detroit, Montreal, find. I mean, it was just crazy. Eventually, two babies were released from the NICU. They are like, we found it. Let's get you there. Let's get you induced. Our circuit was induced. We were in the delivery room with her. We were with her the entire time. We went to every single ultrasound, every single doctor's appointment, went through the entire process together. We got to the delivery room. It was a long time after induction that she finally was ready to deliver. And then we were in the delivery room. It wasn't in, in the OR because just in case something doesn't work. Sure. Yeah, she had a vaginal delivery. Yeah. Both vaginal? 
double yeah. vaginal. Good lord. Yeah. yeah, and the second baby was breached. Like, and they still, she was able to, to turn. Oh my and, god! Yeah, and and pull him out. Oh my god! He was adamant against C-section, and she she told us from the beginning the rush she gets giving birth is like nothing else, and we were like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I mean, can't argue with we that. We'll never understand it, right? But... Right. Oh my god! So babies are born, and let me beautiful baby boys. At what point did you know you were having boys? Pretty early? Yes. Okay. Because I know in Toronto, they don't tell you the gender before they transfer. It's a big thing. Right. So I think it was eight weeks or Or 12 weeks. There's a blood test. Okay. So like as soon as she could know, you guys knew. Yeah. And let's talk about when Trouble in Paradise started in terms of legalities. So we delivered in September. Our babies were in the NICU for um, about a month, and then they were released. Good. In October. A month, it's really good. Yeah, like nothing. They, they came out. They didn't need any help breathing or anything. OB said you have to get the steroids for the lung development 24 hours before, and it was perfect. And they were just there. Four to weeks, meet. amazing. And then they were released. We did the bris monthly, obviously, and then we were in in Canada, as in many uh, West civilized Western countries, you get a year of parental leave. And so we both were off work and uh, with an impending winter, I thought, okay, why would we winter in Toronto with our newborns if we don't have to, right? And we like, can go to California. My, the whole yeah. idea the whole time was, and two years backing up a little bit, two years prior, DOMA was struck down by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And so within days of DOMA being struck down, we sent in a lot of paperwork for a green card. While we were still living in Toronto, Free kids, free implementation. Obviously, we knew it was going to take a long time. Get the green card, it did. He got his green card while we were pregnant. And so the idea was after the babies are born, we were going to finally make the move to California that we had intended on doing seven years prior, but couldn't because of Delma. And so we took the boys in January to the U.S. consulate in Toronto to get their passports. It took us a couple months to get the appointment. So, you know, we were waiting and we're like, got to get out of this winter, right? And we're not working. And so we went to the American consulate in Toronto. We went online, printed out the application, brought our marriage light certificate. That's what was required. Brought the um, birth certificate, which in Canada, there's two spots. It doesn't say mother, father anymore. It says parent to parent. So it's pretty cool and progressive, yeah. right? Both of our names are exclusively on the birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And um, we got to the consulate, stood in line for a while, went to the window, paid the fees, paid all the paperwork, <laughs> and then sat in a waiting room with our twins for what seemed like an hour or two, but might have mm-hmm. been less. It was probably um, like four minutes. <laughs> Yeah, but when you've got at that point, you know, three month or four month old twin boys, when you're like running, almost about to run out of diapers, because like the twelfth time in ten minutes, Mm -hmm. you know, it's starting to get bad, right? Yeah. And so we talked so much about that day at the consulate, the U.S. Mm -hmm. consulate in Toronto, because that's what started really the nightmare that ended well for us, but a nightmare a few years of just living through a nightmare. We were told by the consular officer that in order to grant you a citizenship, there's the requirement that only kids born abroad 
that share a genetic connection with a U.S. citizen parent, only they can be recognized as U.S. citizens at birth. And then we're like, okay, wait, so wait, let's break this down. So, so you have two boys. One of them has Elad's genetic material plus your egg donor, and one of them has Andrew's genetic material plus the same egg donor. Both born in the uterus of a separate woman, not the egg donor, right? Surrogate separate woman in Canada. Apart, right? In Canada. Okay. And I, as a child of born in America to Canadian parents, knew very well the rules of yes, you can have a citizenship from a country without being born there. Because if, if you have one parent from that country, then you can obtain that same citizenship. Right. right. So you're both and, assuming that both children will get American and Canadian. Because both of their birth certificates, both of their birth certificates had both of our names. So sure. we were their parents. Right. On birth. So right. It never crossed our mind that there's some genetic requirement. Like, why? Mm -hmm. So she told us there's a genetic requirement and we have to go perform a DNA test in order to prove that the children are related to Andrew, who is the U.S. citizen. And only then, if they are related to Andrew genetically, they'll be able to receive it. Before that, though, she asked us, who's related to you, Andrew? Said, well, they both are. They're both yeah. my kids. Right. Twins, right. Right. She's like, no, 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 no. Who's genetically connected to you? And we had decided before giving birth and that only us and the surrogate knew that. We weren't going to tell even our mothers, right? Because this is a detail that is totally irrelevant and no one's business. And so here's this lady behind this plexiglass window asking me a question that my own mother wouldn't have the nerve to ask who's genetically connected to you? So I'm like, it's none of your business. Mm. She's like, well, I'm making it my business. And I said, okay, well then, uh, and then she told us the, she said, if you don't provide evidence on who's genetically connected to you, then I'm going to deny both applications and neither of your kids will be American citizens. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? They're both genetically connected. How do you like that? And she's like, well, I don't believe you. I'm going to require you to do a DNA test. Mm. And, and she said, until I receive the results of the DNA test, both your applications are pending. And so, I mean, it was a very, very difficult, dramatic. There were a lot of tears. Mm. I was, I did a lot of screaming and yelling. Yeah. Probably didn't handle myself the best way, but it was a stressful moment. We're not judging you. This is highly emotionally charged moment. And do you think it was luck of the draw with this lady or do you think anyone would have done it? It's interesting because... It is at their discretion, and she told us. It's at my discretion to require a DNA test or not, because we have friends that are heterosexual, a man and a woman. The woman is not an American citizen, was pregnant, the kids were born in the UK, and the husband is infertile. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they are used not a donor, right. right. They use a donor sperm, but they would never ask them, right. like, are the kids genetically related to you because there's an assumption of parenthood? Um, and if you see heterosexual couple and their names are on the birth certificate, they come as a happy family to the consulate with a the baby. Then you're like, okay, the baby is both of yours. And we assume is genetically connected to you and they get citizenship. So because we are gay couple, obviously we had questions that uh, no other couple would have to face. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So they go into pending status. 
And then we provide the DNA test yeah, and we, we find out that one is basically genetically related to Andrew, the US citizen, and the other to me, which I'm not. They sent a um, congratulation letter with the passports to Aiden in the mail, the big envelope, and then a little envelope addressed to Ethan saying, you are your application is denied because you have not satisfied the requirement of being genetically related to a U.S. parent, oh. a U.S. citizen parent. And that was devastating for us. We didn't know what to do at the beginning. It took us a few weeks to gather our thoughts. But yeah. I have to say, Andrew was like adamant. He's like, this is not going to fly. I am not going to let it go. I will fight and get to wherever I need to get to to correct this wrong, because this is wrong. This is not right. And, and furthermore, when we started talking to people that had some legal knowledge, those people said, that's not actually what the Immigration and Nationality Act says. They do not mention genetic at all. They there's talk no about parental. Like, this isn't a law, you know? And, it's an interpretation and of it, the State Department. And it was, I was especially upset because... You know, I mean, it did, the thought did cross my mind. I knew that Ethan was not genetically connected. And so this is be, predates even their birth. And I, the thought did cross my mind, like, this is my child. You know, I am not going to be and make any kind of differentiation between one and the other. They're right. both my twins, both my children. And so to have that happen, it was such a slap in my face. We decided to move to California anyway, because I was like, screw this. So Aiden and I came to California, flew, we flew to LAX, we arrived on our American passports, Alad on his Israeli passport with his US green card, and then Ethan on a tourist visa, on his Canadian passport with a tourist visa. And I remember the guy at immigration was like, whoa, like, this all looks weird. Like, why are you all on different like, <laughs> And we're like, I, we're like, we don't want to get into it. And he, he was actually very understanding and nice. Yeah. He's like, hey, well, you know, come on in. But I mean, obviously the tourist visa Right. And so Ethan had to leave after six months. And at this point, we had found jobs in LA and we were making our move. What we had wanted to do for seven years was finally coming true. And I, like a lot was saying, I just, I knew I had to figure this out. It was very stressful. I didn't know how. And then this is the summer of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, immigration was the hot topic because I, I remember, remember when I yes I remember the hot topic and I remember at some point seeing a headline about your guy's story that was like meet the toddler that Trump is trying to keep it you know it was something very yeah. alarmist and very true immigration was insane at that time like the extra hill that you had to climb to make this happen there were people, I mean I don't know if you remember but there were protests at LAX you know yeah the Trump administration was only six months old at this point, and they were actively deporting Middle Easterners. The Muslim ban, paging children at the border. It was just a whole mess. But we knew that we cannot let it go, and we're going to fight it. We actually, we started putting feelers out there. Who can help us? We need legal help. We need someone to fight for us. And I actually spoke to Yoni Fife, who was back then the chair of the board at ICAR. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what? I know I've worked with this amazing organization. It's called Immigration Equality in New York. And what they do, their job is to help same-sex couples that um, and, and their families and issues they experience that are related to immigration. Why won't you reach out to them and tell them you spoke to me and I sent you? And that's immediately, I hung up with him. I remember I was in a parking lot in the car. 
and I stand in my car and I called immigration equality. It was a half an hour of an intake call and they said, we'll be in touch with you. At the same time, Andrew's sister is very connected in the Valley and she got the local news channel. I don't remember which channel. CBS News. CBS News. Channel 2 News. Mm-hmm. And they did a little story about us that made, that was the first time that anyone was ever aware of our situation. And after that story, a lot of people started reaching out to us. We would love to represent you. We would love to speak to you. And, you know, we went through, I remember for months, we were jumping between different law firms and law offices. Some are like a one person show and some are huge, big on Century Boulevard in Century mm-hmm. City. And, um, and then we were like, oh my God, like people really want to help us. Eventually we spoke to Immigration Equality and they were willing to take our case pro bono, wow. working with a massive law firm in New York and LA to represent us. And so who exactly were you, were you suing? The State Department and the... Uh, um, of America, yeah. of the United yeah. States. Well, Senator okay. Red, because it was essentially... Rex Tillerson. Yeah, Rex Tillerson was the Secretary of State, and there was no law legislated through Congress that as a child has to be genetically connected to an American citizen to receive American citizenship. That was just a State Department policy or interpretation mm-hmm. of the law that they added on top, and we argued it. Eventually, it got to a district court, a federal district court in L.A., which is the first level. We won that case, and we were so happy. But and were you said, like, this is done. We're done. We did it. It's done. Yeah. Because it's very clear. The judge was actually a conservative judge. One of the few conservative judges in L.A. Yeah. He ruled in our favor because it was very plain. Cut and, and dry. Simple. Yeah. Easy. And the Trump administration, the State Department, decided to appeal. And at this point, this switch had been made from Rex Tillerson to Mike Pompeo. I don't know if you know much about Mike Pompeo, but he was arguably the most homophobic. Yeah. Made a career about prosecuting. Yeah. Um, gay, gay people, yeah. Abroad, right? He was right. the Secretary of State. So the lawsuit changed to suing the Mike Pompeo State Department, and Mike Pompeo is not going to let this go. Mm. And so they appealed, and they appealed. The next level is the Ninth Circuit. By the way, I'm not a lawyer. I just like work. No, you, of course. You should be now. Yeah. Um, And so the next level is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals at San Francisco. And our case was heard in front of them. And did you go? No. It was during COVID. So everything was Zoom. We didn't have. Could you watch it? Did you watch it happen? They they did something called summary judgment. Okay. this This is how cut and dry it was. Yeah. They literally, like, it got to them and they reviewed, they read it and they were like, we don't even need to talk to y'all. Like, this is perfect. It was summary judgment. It was like, here's Easy. our report. They went. Okay. And they also ruled, I think it was two to one this time, that the appeal is, is not going to stand and the district court decision stands, which means Ethan should get citizenship, like mm-hmm. his twin brother. Then the, the Trump administration tried to appeal a second time. Come on. And, the Ninth Circuit to hear it on bunk, which is basically all the judges, I don't know, 15, 23, whatever judges are in the, the whole panel to hear it together to determine otherwise. The, the, the Ninth Circuit rejected it. And they said, no, we're not going to hear it on bunk. 
this is our decision. Well, so the that. next stage was that the government had 60 days to decide if they're appealing to the Supreme Court or not. And we were like, dying. Yeah. Well, and this was, this was now September 2020. And we were waiting any day to hear the news that they were going to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that was like, oh, our lawyers were like, we've won in the district court. We've won in the appellate court. We're good, you guys. Stay positive. Stay focused. And I remember she died. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And the call we had with her lawyers later that day, it was not. It was Ro- I think it was Rosh Hashanah. It was Arab Rosh Hashanah. I remember we were all at dinner and I was, I was like, no. And then she, and I, you know, obviously in denial, there's no way. Yeah. The election in two months. Trump yeah. is going to be the place right. to right. And So the makeup of the, the composition of the Supreme Court drastically changed, not in our favor. And we were all very concerned. But the Biden team, I think specifically Kamala Harris, her people reached out to our lawyers and said, should we win? We'll drop this. This is over. And luckily, we did the, the you know, the good guys prevailed. Mm-hmm. And Biden won the election. And he was inaugurated in January of 2021. And, you know, it's so funny because I, I, I don't want to get anything like that because that's not what I'm trying to do. But you can. I can. OK. I mean, say whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, obviously, you know where I voted, but it was just when Biden said, oh, when we win, we'll make sure to drop the appeal against your family. And we will also change this stupid policy of the State Department. We'll have Anthony Blinken, who's, you know, the Secretary of State now, change this policy. And, I mean, I thought it was going to take them years. I mean, like, look, like, they had a lot of shit to clean, right? Like, <laughs> when Biden took over, there was a... And, like, sure enough, like, 60 days later, we got a notice that they had changed it. And I'm like, wow, way to go, Biden, for prioritizing my family. Um, like, way to go, you guys, obviously. I mean, it's so emotional, even just sitting here and talking to you about it. I have like goosebumps every time I think about you getting that notification from the Harris team that they're just going to win and drop it. I can't even imagine how much of a relief that must have been for you. And for them to go in and change it, thank God it was you guys who this happened to, because it might have been somebody else who didn't have the stamina to keep fighting for it. And this ridiculous rule would still be in place because nobody would even know or think about it. So I'm sorry it happened to you, but thank God it happened to you. I get it. I get it. I think looking back at it, I'm glad we did what we did. We took the the route we did to fight for our son. We promised the day that they were born that we're going to treat them exactly the same. They're twins, born four minutes apart, and we're one family like all other families. And all we want is to be one family unit, happy and healthy, and just live our life. And, you know, adversity happens and we had to deal with it and we dealt with it. And I'm just really grateful that no other couple will have to go through the process we went through and the sleepless nights of, is ICE going to come and knock on our door to take our son that overstayed his tourist visa? What's going to happen to our family? Are they going to tear us apart? And it seems like a distant memory now, but it it will forever live in our our minds. Yeah. So incredible, you guys. I mean, I love this story so much. Thank you for sharing it in such detail here. Do your boys know their story and do they know this piece of their story? Because they're what, seven now or eight? They're seven. Seven. They know that they are a result of surrogacy. They met their surrogate. We we took them to Toronto last year and they met her 
but they don't know the whole citizenship story. I don't think they understand what citizenship even is. Yeah. Will you tell them at some point? Will you tell oh, them? Or, we, yeah. we have everything documented, all the articles, the court proceedings, everything is saved and kept when they are interested and at the age they can understand. We'll, they will know we'll tell them what we've done for them. I love it. Just play them this podcast. Done and done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. I like to close out with any, you can each do one, or if you have one, you both know, like any sort of cliche or funny phrase or cheesy phrase, just something that you think about that sort of helps drive you through hard times, or maybe that helped you drive through those harder times. No pressure if you don't have one. Or just a, even a phrase you might say to, um, to them right now as, as seven-year-old boys. Fight for what's yours and what's right and what you want to do in this world. Yeah. Don't give Perfect. up. I mean, one thing I say to them a lot now, I say it all the time. It's very important for me, raising my kids. I love them. I got to make them feel special. But to make them understand that they are they are not the center of the universe. I'm not raising these spoiled brats. So I tell them all the time, the world does not revolve around you. Mm-hmm. You know, when they have the, there was a meltdown yesterday when we went to an arcade and one of the kids ran out of tokens and screamed and cried and demanded more. And I said, my cliche, the world does not revolve around you. So I guess I'm bringing that up because at the end of the day, the world doesn't revolve around them. I mean, I guess for a hot minute, it kind of did. Kind of did, yeah. You know, but I think why I'm bringing that up is because it shouldn't have to. Like, this shouldn't have been a thing. The world should not have known our name. Mm -hmm. No one should have known our name. We should have been left the hell alone. Boring, few dads and a white picket fence and a house with their kids and their dog. Like. That is what we were gunning for. And that's what, that's what we have now. Good. But we have this little blip. Yeah. So I don't want the world to revolve around me. No, but you made, you made a lot of change with that blip. And so I'm sorry that you went through it. I know on a daily basis, it was awful, but you will affect a lot of other people, humans. And like, that is the whole reason I do this podcast from my own infertility journey to be able to affect other people and theirs too, you know, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Every time I hear or read that story, and I've seen it out there, I am just blown away by everything that they've been through and what people will do to fight for their children. And this is a happy ending one. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to Andrew and Alad. Please, please share this episode with anybody that might be interested in immigration, fertility, gay marriage, all of the things that we love talking about on this show. And it's probably holiday time for you. So I'm sending you lots of love and warm cozies. Remember to follow, follow, follow at the Fertility Chick at Abby Feeder at Encircle Fertility on Instagram. And I will see you soon. Bye.